Welcome to Changeling Cast, the podcast dedicated to reading and dissecting urban fantasy, paranormal, and speculative romance series. I'm your host, Mara, from the YouTube channel Books Like Woe, and this season we are making our way through Nalini Singh's Psy Changeling series. seventh full novel in the series, Blaze of Memory. Now, it's been a little bit of a struggle bus journey to get here because when I was originally supposed to be recording, I'd had a procedure. It's a boring story, but basically, temporarily, my voice was a little bit messed up, so I was like, okay, I'll just push back by a week. Well, now I'm recording on July 4th, which is Independence Day here in the US. Uh, so if it sounds like I'm taking fire upon my house, I am not. It's just that in defiance of local city ordinances, all of my neighbors are setting off fireworks, much to the chagrin of my cats and I'm sure everybody with small children. I probably need to mask my contempt a little bit more. I hate fireworks. <laughs> they're so annoying and so rude, but I know every, I know I'm just like the Debbie Downer. Uh, everybody else likes them. But anyway, so if you hear anything in the background, that is what it is. But today we are going to talk about Blaze of Memory, which is a little bit of a change of pace, I feel like, from the last few books. Um, I guess maybe not. I, I, I guess you could see kind of Branded by Fire as a little bit of a detour from the sort of overall arc that we had going with books four and five. I feel like book seven, Blaze of Memory, really does kind of pick up a little bit with where we were in book five. And I will confess that I didn't have very strong fond memories of this one. I remember liking it well enough, but not it not being particularly memorable to me. Like, I didn't really remember who the heroine in this one was. All I remember, like my deep abiding memory of this particular book is being in my parents' guest room, because I was unemployed at the time, I just graduated from grad school, and I was staying with them while I was looking for a job. And I remember being like in the fetal position on the bed in my parents' guest room, weeping at the end of this book. And that stands, even though I knew even more so this time that everything was going to be fine. And I knew kind of the course of how things were going to work out. The ending of this book is so angsty. I just I cried even this time. So that was a correct memory that I had of this book. But I will say, this book, I think suffers from not from being too long for how much plot it has. I don't know. I'm we'll, we'll get into a, a, a plot summary recap. And then maybe we can process my ambivalence about this book. But I mean, just if you're looking for a weeper of a book in the Psy Changeling series, this one will definitely do you. It kind of um, devolves into quote unquote cichlet uh, for the last, you know, 15% of the book and it, it kills me every time. But in terms of a recap, there's not as much plot to recap in this one, um, because I, I think that this is meant to be a more relationship heavy book, but maybe the trope, I don't know, we'll, we'll figure it out as, as we go. But um, in terms of what plot there is, so we start off kind of with a bang because an unknown Psy woman is dumped on the doorstep of Deb Santos, who if you will remember from previous books is the director of the Shine Foundation which is the organization that it's kind of like the quote unquote ruling body of the forgotten, who are the descendants of the Psy who left the Psy net 
uh, when silence was implemented, I believe in 1979. So these are their descendants, and they're kind of covert because the Psy, uh, especially towards the beginning of silence, were very threatened by the forbidden, and they tried to sort of hunt them down and eliminate them. So the Shine Foundation is there to help kind of protect this group of people and to try to, you know, provide solidarity and resources, um, especially for children who are coming into their psi powers. And so Dev is the head of that organization. And he's, you know, kind of a tough ass, but he um, is becoming even more so recently. And people keep talking about sort of his metal overtaking him, which we don't find out directly what that is till the end of the book, but we get kind of allusions to he has some kind of power relating to metal, and that that is also infusing his personality and making him kind of like impenetrable to human warmth and emotion and the people around him are getting concerned about him. But anyway, so we we open with him and he has this woman dumped on his doorstep and she remembers nothing. She has complete amnesia. She doesn't remember who she is. She somewhat remembers that she's a psi, um, but he and everyone around him is immediately suspicious of her for obvious reasons. And we spend the first little part of the book trying to figure out um, who she is, why she was left with Dev. And what we come to find out pretty quickly is that this is Yekaterina, who was the lab assistant to Ashaya uh, in the fourth and fifth books. And we thought that she was killed in the fifth book, basically as punishment to Ashaya. We thought she was dead. And I would totally forgotten, guys, that she came back in this book. So this was a pleasant little like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot about this moment for me. Um, but yes, she she was not killed. She was, in fact, tortured for five months by Ming fucking Laban. We all know that I hate his guts. And uh, this is book is just another reminder and reason as to why I hate him so much. He has basically completely um, stripped her psyche. So much the same way that in the third book, we found out that Brenna, the trauma that she had suffered was really around um, Enrique basically committing psychic rape of her. Ming Laban has done something very similar to uh, Yekaterina, and he's actually even made her name Yekaterina a trigger word for her, and it sends her into shocks um, when Ashaya you know, identifies her and they try to remind her of who she is. She goes into convulsions because he's made it a, a trigger trigger word. So she decides she needs to pick a new name and she decides to go by Katya, which is a nickname for her real full name. But she is Katya from then on in the book. And really, the plot is, especially in the first half, a lot of kind of just running around Um Dev feels like he needs to keep her very close to him. As she begins to get more of her memories back, she becomes aware that she has a mission that Ming Laban has given her to kill Dev. Like he basically has um, tried to make her kind of a sleeper assassin. So she becomes aware of the fact that she has this subliminal mission pretty early on. Um, but she, she tells, I mean, Dev is aware that that's probably the case. And she actually tells him that he needs to kill her if the time comes. And they kind of, he doesn't feel great about that, but he acknowledges that could be a reality. Um, so basically a lot of the, the first half of this book is them flying around, um, trying to contain her. Uh, he's also doing different kind of missions for Shine. So one of the main things that they're dealing with is that this boy 
has been found uh, in a mental institution who is a cardinal level telepath, but nobody has ever trained him on how to do anything with those powers. So he's being kept drugged constantly and he's basically in really bad shape. So Dev doesn't feel like he can leave Katya by herself. So he takes Katya with him to go try to deal with that situation. Two of his lieutenants are with him, uh, Tag and Tiara. And so there's some nice kind of interplay between all of them. But basically, the conflict at this stage is that uh, Katya, he, he's keeping Katya prisoner. And she's already been a prisoner. So she feels resentment that now somebody else is keeping her imprisoned. Even if she, you know, kind of understands why he's doing that. And they both kind of acknowledge to each other, like, I get that you need to keep me imprisoned. And you get that I need to try to escape. Because part of what's going on is that she also has this compulsion to go north. And she doesn't really, she at first is wondering if this is something that Ming Laban has imprinted in her mind. But as she sort of investigates it, she doesn't think that's the case. She thinks that she had, she herself, without his influence, had a reason why she wanted to go north. So she has this very strong compulsion to do that. And obviously, Dev is not going to let her do that. There is this big moment of sort of betrayal that happens when she remembers, because she is a mid-range MSI and a mid-range telepath, that some people have the ability to kind of focus all of their energy into one of their dual giftings and amplify its ability. And she can be like a nine level telepath if she does that. So she remembers that when they are staying with the boy who is a cardinal telepath, and she tries to sort of venture out in her mind. But Tag, the guy who's there with Dev senses this and shuts her down. And Dev views this as her lying to him and like, it gets to be this whole thing between them. Eventually, he kind of gets over it. They make up. They go back to the West Coast. They were in New York or Vermont. They go back to the West Coast, back to like the San Francisco area, I believe, to... Um, I forget why they have to do that, but they, they do. They all go back to that side of the country. And they kind of are all bonding a little bit more. Uh, Katya is really getting to strike up a relationship with Tiara. But eventually, she really does feel the strong compulsion to go north. So she's been hoarding some of the medication that they'd been giving to her. And she lightly sedates everyone with the help of the boy who they are uh, teaching to um, to control his powers. Oh, that's why they go to San Francisco, because Sasha uh, and Lucas, Sasha basically is going to help him learn how to do some shielding and how to start controlling his powers. So they need to be near the Dark River pack. That's, that's why. Reminder there. Um, so he, he kind of gets what Katya is trying to do and agrees to create a distraction for her so that she can um, put some stuff in their coffee. She manages to get away from them and hitches a ride with a lady trucker up north, but she is intercepted by one of um, Dev's cousins, basically, who lives near the border. And he comes up there and he basically agrees that he's going to help her go north to find out what it is that's there. Um, and at that point, they have fully succumbed to their attraction. You know, they're they're getting it on and uh, not fully yet, but they've they've started fooling around kind of a thing. But they are making their way 
up north and they get all the way to Sunshine, Alaska, which has been sort of a recurring, um, we've seen in the text, these intercuts between the action and A, a diary that was kept by a Psy woman um, at the beginning of Silence, written to her son, Matthew, and B, this log of a scientific station, like an observation station in Sunshine, Alaska. And that is where Katya has been driven to go. So we've been getting these sort of like logs of what's been going on there interspersed. So when they get there, they realize that there's basically been a massacre at this station. Um, and it was all Psy. So basically, this is evidence once again, that silence is not controlling the madness of the Psy, as the Psy Council would have everyone believe. So um, it, I mean, it's obviously awful, but Katya had overheard Ming Laban talking to someone about this. And that was what was subconsciously in her mind that she had to get there to, you know, get more proof of what's going on with the Psy Council. So her and Dev record that for information slash proof slash blackmail uh, against the Psy for a later date. So that is kind of the big driver of action up till that point in the book. The other thing that we become aware of is the fact that Katya is knows that her mind is being kept kind of locked down in prison by Ming Laban in the Sinet. She has, however, also realized that that the way that he has set up this prison is that it is hooked into her own mind. If she were to try to kind of unwind what he did, it would basically tear her mind apart. Very similar to what we've heard in the past from like Judd, um, when he was trying to decon decondition himself from silence, that there was like a physical reinforcement to the silence. It's kind of a similar concept here. So she is very aware at this point that not only is she trapped in the prison and she can't really remove it because it will literally destroy her own mind, but also that because Ming Laban has cut her off from the rest of the Sinet, yes, she has freedom because nobody can see what she's doing. She's been able to freely experience emotion, etc. But she's also not getting the biofeedback she needs to be able to live. So she is more aware at this point that she is slowly dying. She's having like nosebleeds and she's starting to have headaches, etc. And at first she tries to keep this from Dev, but he becomes more and more aware that that is in fact what's going on. So um, things kind of continue to escalate from there where she is, continues to get sicker and he kind of gets fixated in his mind that he needs to for kind of trap Ming Laban and force him to release Katya from her prison because Ming Lamont had indicated something that if she were to be successful in her mission with Dev, that he would potentially allow her to live and keep her as sort of like a off the books assassin. So they come up with a plan to up Ming Laban and force him to let Katya go. And they I mean, through machinations, whatever, they come up with a plan, they execute on that plan. Katya kind of goes off script and actually knocks Dev out and delivers him to Ming Laban. Um, and we as the reader are not sure in that moment if she's actually given into the compulsion to kill him because I should mention earlier on, she almost stabbed Dev, but she was able to control it enough to stab her leg instead. So we're aware that there is like a real 
violent compulsion of her to kill him because that's what Ming Laban implanted in her mind. So as a reader, we're not sure, like, did she, is she actually giving in to those impulses or is this a part of the plan? But no, no, it is, it is a part of the plan. And uh, they are able to basically in the scuffle of Ming Laban thinking that she's brought him Dev and then him revealing that there actually is no way to save her at this point that he lied to her about that. He tries to take her down, but she is able to shoot him in the head. So we think that she may have actually killed Ming Laban at first. However, we quickly find out she did not kill Ming Laban, but he is currently unconscious, but they are all aware that once he wakes up, he is going to obviously like cut her ties from the Sinet and try to kill her that way. So Katya decides that she wants to die on her own terms, basically. So she goes into the Sinet and she cuts her link to the Sinet, uh, which basically leaves her in a coma. The doctors for the Forbidden um, come in and like put her on a feeding tube and Dev basically prepares to say goodbye to her. She also has um, Sasha and Lucas and Dorian and Ashaya, along with Ashaya's son, Keenan and Talion, Clay's adoptive daughter, Noor, who uh, Katya helped save from the Psy. They all come to say goodbye to her. It's incredibly emotional. <laughs> and um, Dev kind of has made the decision that he is going to take her off life support the next day, but he wants he wants to have like one more night of watch, watching her sleep. It is so sad. And I was weeping at this point, even though I remembered this from the first time, I was still crying. And um, Keenan and Noor uh, kind of curl up around her and he, he, you know, their parents are like, oh, we'll move them. And he says, no, no, she would, you know, she saved Noor. It would make her happy to like be with him, be with these kids for her last night. And he starts feeling throughout the night that her link to him. So if you'll remember, the Forbidden have not a, a version of the Sinet that is called the Shadow Net. Um, and, and Dev is obviously in the Shadow Net. On the Shadow Net, he starts to see her connection to him growing stronger. And he can't tell if it's just wishful thinking, like he can't tell what's going on. But he notices that both Noor and Keenan have their hands on... Um, Katya's skin directly. So they he's wondering, are they doing something? He can't tell what's going on, but he can tell she's getting better. And by the next morning, when the doctors come back in, they kind of scoff at him. And he's like, no, no, like do another scan, check her out. And they are all amazed because they realize that she it, has been completely healed. And what we find out is that Noor and Keenan have sort of like a dual ability an ability that is contingent on another side to work. So Keenan is, I think he's a cardinal telepath. If he's not a cardinal, he's an incredibly strong telepath. And Noor has what she describes as a weaving capability. And this was foreshadowed actually earlier in the book because she is talking to Judd, um, Judd Lauren, who, if you'll remember, is a TK cell, which means he can like knit things back together at a cellular level. He can either destroy or knit back together at a cellular level. And she says something to him like, we have the same gift or we have the same ability. And everyone's kind of not sure what that means exactly. But what we come to realize is that she has this unique ability that is not really known within the Psy themselves. Um, but we've had this foreshadowed in the last several books that the Forbidden 
have a bunch of different capabilities that the Psy don't necessarily have because they're not quote unquote kind of like the equivalent of a pure breed dog. That is really what the Psynet is about is like, we want a textbook perfect German Shepherd. But outside of the Psynet, the Forbidden have like a bunch of mutts that are also awesome and like have their own, you know, personalities and strengths and whatever. Feels weird to compare humans to dogs, but you take my point. Anyway, Nora has this ability that like basically nobody has really seen before. And then they also point out that Ashaya and Amara have a very similar um, ability to kind of piggyback off of each other's powers. And Dorian points out like, well, it's probably not that surprising since Keenan is your kid, that maybe he innately, you know, is lent to the idea of sharing power with someone or like merging power together. So it's a neat little trick and, and Katya comes out of it fine. So, you know, we end with them riding off into the sunset together. Other notable things that happen in this book. So Henry Scott is asserting himself more and more. And Shoshana Scott is not cool with it. But she's realized that he wants utter silence and for there to be no Psy Council. She wants utter si silence and to be in charge of the Psy Council. So they kind of are working together, but Shoshana thinks she can still kind of manipulate Henry, but he's becoming much more assertive. And that is something Caleb and Nikita both notice. Um, that the, you know, attempt on Ming Laban's life is obviously a big note. And it's also underscored by the fact that we find out more about the arrows in this book. So Ming, we've known is in charge of the arrows, which is that elite cadre of kind of super Psy soldiers. And he reveals to, I think, the entire Psy Council that the arrows are never killed. Um, that even if they become incapable of working, there is a kind of blood oath among the arrows of utter loyalty to each other. And that that is like the one bond of loyalty you cannot violate. And if you violate it, you won't be able to control the arrows. So um, that that's kind of revealed that that is an element of being an arrow. And we find out that when Ming Laban is under... Vasek, who we've met before and know is helping the rebels, is colluding with another arrow who we meet. I think we've met, we meet him in this book, but if not, he definitely plays the biggest role that he has so far, um, who's Aiden. And Aiden is in charge of essentially, he's not an MSI, but he kind of in is in charge of like t caretaking the arrows. He's an arrow himself, but he like is in charge of um, monitoring their use of jacks, which is a drug that is used to kind of enhance arrow performance or like keep them under control. Um, so he is sort of like kind of the, I, it, I don't rem we don't really get this full picture in this book, but what we will find out eventually is that he's sort of like the implicit leader of the arrows. And what we find out for the two of them is that they very strongly consider killing Ming Laban um, at that moment because they are aware that he has in fact been killing arrows who are no longer able to work, which is a violation of like their core tenant. And they decide that it is not the right time to kill him. But like, what we find out from that exchange is that Ming thinks that he has the arrows in his pocket, but probably he does not fully. 
The other kind of like political machination-y thing that's happening is that there is dissent within the Forbidden talking about whether or not there should be allowances for some people to have some version of silence, including parts of Dev's own family, because um, his cousin Jack has a son, Will, who is starting to exhibit violent tendencies, which culminate in him killing a family pet. So content warning for the death of a of a dog. Um, but he is horrified at this and he... They like none of them know what to do, and they're thinking like, well, him being silent would be better than him going crazy. And what they come to, kind of the conclusion they come to at the end of the book is that he's he's actually a TK cell, much like Judd Lauren is. So Judd Lauren is going to come and give him lessons about how to control his powers, and kind of where that leads the forbidden is, look, silence, control of your powers is a good thing. But our ancestors gave up a lot for us to not be silent. And we should do everything we can to not resort to that. And by making these connections with the broader world, we have more access to resources to try to help those of us who need help controlling their powers. So that's the other kind of big um, political element in this one. And I think that's most of the plot that I need to tell you about. So in terms of why I just feel really, I feel very mixed about this book, because I think kind of like the book before it, it's meant to be very heavy on the relationship element. But I think this particular trope, which reminds me a lot of the kind of dynamic between Clay and Tally, which is like, true enemies to lovers, like, I really genuinely kind of hate you, but I love you. And the way that it causes Dev to treat Katya, while I understand it, I just personally, it's not my trope candy. It's not my favorite. So the fact that that was so much of where the energy of the book was, I think it just makes it so it felt... This was the first of these books that it felt like it took me a long time to get through it. And I remember that the first time as well. Like, I remember feeling like it was kind of a slog until it gets to about, like, once they actually get to Sunshine and find the thing Katya has been, you know, fixated on. From then on, I think the book kind of picks up pace and I was more into it. But I think because their particular relationship dynamic is not necessarily my favorite, um, this one just doesn't work for me. Like, I still enjoy it. That's why it's also hard for me to <laughs> rate because I'm like, okay, would I rather be reading this than almost anything else? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but for a side changeling book, it's not necessarily my favorite. I don't know if that makes sense. But um, yeah, I would say that this one doesn't fully work for me. But I, I, I don't have like the problems with it that I had with, for instance, with Clay and Tally's book where I'm like, the first half of this book I really did like, and the second half of this book I love. This is more like the first half of this book I was just sort of like meh on, and the second half I was more into. So I don't quite know where that leaves me, but that was kind of my impressions of it. Thematically, this made me think a lot about the role of silence. Like, I think this book explores the idea of why silence was implemented in the first place. Um, and making, and Nalini and I talked about this in the interview I did with her, the idea that different Psy have responded to the reality of their mental state in different ways, and that it feels very human, the fact that there's not a uniform response to the situation they find themselves in, in terms of like, 
their relationship to their own sanity. I really like that this book was taking that seriously and exploring it even more deeply. I feel like, you know, it's something that's present in the books, but this one I felt like is really interrogating this idea of, okay, if you know that you are losing your grasp on your full mental faculties, what price are you willing to pay to try to regain that control? And the answer for different people is different. And I I liked that as sort of a, a thematic exploration. Um, also, you know, I think Dev, kind of Dev's tragic backstory, because they all have to have a tragic backstory, right? Um, he, his father went mad and killed his mother in front of him, which was obviously very traumatic. And so this is part of why, you know, he has been allowing the metal um, he, you know, we get a full revelation later in the book that he basically can control metal, but that that has like extended into more broadly, like being able to understand and manipulate technology on a very granular level, almost the way an MSI would would manipulate um, the human body. So, you know, he has allowed that sort of like mechanistic, emotionless posture towards the world to infiltrate the way he thinks about things more, even if he's not labeling it as silence, because he has seen from his own parents, like what can happen if you lose your grip on your sanity. So, you know, and then Katya, obviously, you know, she's plagued by amnesia, and she's plagued by these compulsions. So I think this book has a lot of potential metaphorical richness around, um, like mental health, and how that impacts our perception of ourselves and how that impacts kind of our decision making. So that was really like the main kind of thematic resonance with me on this one. I would say this didn't have as much like macro plot stuff happening. So I don't yeah, I don't know if you can hear my ambivalence. It's like I did, you know, I have a good time reading these. But this one wasn't my favorite the first time around. Also still not my favorite this time around. Though both times, it definitely made me really cry when it got to, like, the point of um, Katya being sick and basically we think she is dying. Even though I know it's a romance and things are going to be okay, Nalini Singh sells the shit out of that and it definitely hit me in the feels. So yeah, overall, um, in terms of ratings, uh, for community, cozy community vibes, I'm going to give this, like... Two out of ten uh, jealous panther twins. Um, the Roman and Julian are jealous that Sasha is pregnant. And they're worried she's going to love her baby more than she loves them. Uh, I didn't feel like this one was particularly big on the community vibes. Um, so maybe that's th- part of what's throwing me off here. In terms of sexy times, I'm going to give this hmm, six out of ten I like to be held down in beds um, because we discovered that Katya, uh, well, Katya discovers rather that she enjoys um, being dominated in the bedroom. So we get a little bit of light, you know, kind of consent play. Nothing too crazy, but, you know, it was, it was a little spicy and there's, you know, a good number of the scenes. So I felt like it was it was a pretty spicy one, all things considered. Uh, in terms of political machinations, I'm going to give this... Four out of ten attempted Psy Council assassinations. Um, You know, we definitely have some things happening, but, you know, I think particularly what's going on with the arrows is going to be very important later in the series. So, you know, that is a big uh, piece of the puzzle that we need. 
for the macro plot, but I wouldn't say this one is particularly heavy on political machinations. And then I am going to give this a full 10 out of 10. Uh, my true love is dying before my very eyes uh, because this one is just so angsty. <laughs> for the angst, it definitely gets a 10 out of 10. Uh, it, it, like I said, I do, my memory of this book is weeping <laughs> and the first time around, and then even knowing what was coming, I wept again in this one in my reread. So I think that that definitely says something about its pathos. So all in all, I'm between like a three and a three and a half. Four and so as an Alini Singh book, I think it's a three. Compared with any other book in this category, I would give it a three and a half because I do like it better. Um, I don't think it's it's not my favorite from her, but it is still like a very solid book, like a B plus kind of book. So um, yeah, this one is not necessarily my favorite, but I did still, you know, enjoy it as I pretty much always do with these books. So that will do it for Blaze of Memory. Next time we are actually going to take a detour off of the main books and do a little catch up. We're going to do um, a novella, which is just called Dorian, I believe. It's 5.5. So it's right after Dorian and Ashaya's book. So we'll read that novella. And then I'm also going to do a roundup of all of the short stories that have happened between books one through seven, um, because Malini Singh does release a lot of short stories in her newsletters. Um, so I thought it might be fun to kind of catch up with some of those. So that will be next time. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this very firework-tastic edition of the podcast. And uh, if you enjoyed it, definitely rate and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find me at Books Like Woe on YouTube on Goodreads, on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok, all the things. And like I said, I will catch you in two weeks to talk about some novellas and some short stories. I will talk to you guys then. Bye!